Welcome to the Conversations About Consultation podcast. I'm Zara Ahmed, and you're listening to some of the conversations that myself, my co-host, Dr. Emma Kennedy, Jessica Rowley, and Emily Crosby have had with guests from around the world about consultation in psychology. We all have a keen interest in consultation and hope that this podcast offers a platform to discuss different views about the topic and future directions in consultation. We hope that you enjoy listening to the episodes and if you'd like any further information or interested in being a guest with us, please feel free to get in touch via email or Twitter. On today's episode, we'd like to welcome Helen Shaw, an experienced organisational consultant, coach and researcher who works with individuals, teams and organisations. She uses a system psychodynamic approach to work alongside people to find creative ways of approaching working life challenges so that individuals, teams and organisations can thrive. Helen is currently a consultant at Tavistock Consulting and a certified analytic network coach. She is also the portfolio manager for the doctorate in educational psychology, social care and leadership and management in the Department of Education and Training at the Tavistock and Portman NHS Foundation Trust. She leads the module on consulting and leading organisations for the Masters in Consulting and Leading in Organisations, a Psychodynamic and Systemic Approach. She has a long-standing history of working for the mental health charity Mind and a co-director of the charity Inquest, a voluntary sector organisation that works on legislative, policy and practice change in relation to the deaths in state detention and their investigations. Helen led the human rights charity between 1994 and 2015 to bring about lasting changes in practice and policy. It's so great to have you here on the podcast, Helen, and we're so excited to talk with you a bit more about your experiences. It would be great to begin with a little bit about you and your background. In my work at the inquest, I did a lot of policy around, could we reform the inquest system? Did a lot of policy policy work, did a lot of work with MPs and government. Had quite a kind of, um, I suppose, at that time, linear view of how you could achieve change. Um, and it was, quite, it was a lot about sort of, persuading agencies to change the way they behave and obviously that didn't really work it doesn't work there are still families going through those kinds of inquests today and there's issues still um very similar and I became more and more interested in what might what else might be going on um and I had somebody who was giving me external supervision for the work that I did there because obviously it was quite distressing working a lot with around death and she said to me, I think you really should go and do this course called D10 at the Tavistock in Portland. Listeners who may not be as familiar with our approach to um, course naming. D10 um, is a master's in, it's called now um, Consulting and Leading in Organisations, Systems and Psychodynamic um, Approaches. When I did it, it was called Consulting and Leading in Organisations, Psychoanalytic and Systems Approaches. So it's changed. Um, and it led me to come, become more curious just about organisational change, the, ba- the barriers that get in the, in the way of organisational change, the challenges that people have when they're working in very challenging circumstances, what it feels like to be at work, how we work with all the kind of multiple layers, really, of things that are going on. So I did D10, and then I just um, started to move from being at Inquest into my work as an organisational consultant. But what was quite helpful about that was that because Inquest was a small charity, 
and I was one of the co-directors, I also had quite a lot of experience in um, leadership and running organisations. So um, I, I kind of I feel like I've got quite a sort of overview of challenges for people in leadership positions at whatever level in organisations, as well as remaining really, really curious about barriers to organisational change. So that's my journey to here. And then I subsequently have gone on, I'm just about to finish my doctorate um, because I was really curious. Got more and more curious really about all of this. So, um, And that the doctorate here, if for those people who might be interested, is just called Consultation in the Organisation, Advanced Practice and Research. Learning from experience is one of the, one of the things that we get taught about a lot on our training at the Tavistock. Um, and... I guess, was there any particular experiences of consultation that you've had um, that stayed with you over time and informed your practice? Yes, I was, I was kind of thinking before I came here about that, about kind of the different things I've learned in different pieces of consultancy. And I suppose one of them that, that really resonated for me was um, working with a, a team of people who ran a, ran a respite um, care home for children and young people with profound disabilities both learning disabilities and physical disabilities and the institution was going through quite a lot of real difficulties and I was asked to do some work with them to think about their systems and to think about getting a kind of plan together a strategic plan together but I was asked to do that and asked to work with someone else that I didn't know and I was put together in this consultant pair by somebody who was someone who I knew and trusted and was somebody who's been an organisation consultant written a lot about about the area so I think what, what was really important in that was about learning about the importance of kind of consultant relationships with each other if you're working with more than one person and the time and attention that needs to go into that, but also about the quality of the work that you can do if you have a really good either pair doing the work or I think what I learned about that was it was about the strength of peer supervision so you had a reflecting space where someone could actually talk to you. It wasn't necessarily your supervisor, but talk to you about what, may, what might be going on, what you might be missing um, in the material. So that was, that was really rich. And also, I think very, it's made me really interested in pair work in organisations as well, because I think there are so many powerful processes that were going on in that organisation. Lots of um, stress and anger and lots of people behaving in ways that were kind of acting out their emotional response to what was going on and it was very very challenging and very difficult and I think for one person to have been doing that work might have been really hard and we could kind of almost do a dance together where one of us would be in the foreground and one in the background in a more observer role when we were working with different groups so it was, that was really interesting that's really stayed with me and then another piece of work that I did um, that was about um, helping to set up a being a consultant to a really senior lawyer who was setting up a team of lawyers to um, represent families at an inquiry into a major disaster and that was kind of looking at how it was going to go on for probably about 18 months this um, inquiry and it was both looking at kind of who we wanted to recruit into the team and the kind of the kind of breadth of knowledge not just legal knowledge but it was looking at kind of what might the support needs be of that team given that they were going to be working away from home in a really intense quite heavily publicly scrutinized um, inquiry and how might we think both about the legal needs of the team but also about 
support needs and how the team was going to work together and set a structure up that would be both that would provide the kind of support but also the containment so I, I, I've always been and I am remain really interested in the interrelationship between the structures and the kind of procedures that are set up in organizations and then what it's like for people both in terms of the dynamics between them but also what goes on inside people and the the, the, the trick I guess is to try and calibrate all three of those domains mm. um, so that that piece of work was it was just and it was also just really fascinating because it's quite unusual we often get asked to kind of work in healthcare settings and social care settings but not in the law you've mentioned there you know like kind of key influences on your practice so that you know real significance of relationships and that point about containment and containment for people who may be in you know very very stress inducing systems are there any other key influences that you'd say actually yeah in terms of my current consultation practice uh, framework that you have that would really inform how you work I, I really like and I think a lot about the work of Wilfred Beyond um, and about groups and group dynamics and how groups are. And one of the things that I think is really interesting is about the processes that happen in groups, whereby if you're an individual within a group, you bring your life experience, you bring everything that you've um, done in your life to that group. And often all of that, you'll have what Beyond calls a valency to behave in a particular way in a group. And the group has an unconscious capacity to get you to do that. And I think that's really fascinating. And I remember when I was learning about all of this, just being completely appalled that something other than me could influence the way I was behaving. Um, and it, but, but for me, I think that's really interesting about the way that groups or groups of groups get people or other bits of organisations to take on different aspects of the organisation. So you'll think about, I don't know, an, a big organisation and everybody hates one particular department, like we all don't like human resources or something <laughs> like that. They carry all the negativity for the organisation. Yeah. And similarly, in a constellation of organisations, you might think about, I don't know, we're talking particularly about education and psychology. So you might think in a particular area, the good school and the not so good school, you know, who carries what for that particular area. So I think a lot about that in terms of, of Beyond's work, but also about how when people are in groups and those are in, you know, small working groups, but also in larger groups like a whole school or it, how do how do we stay in touch with the reality of the work that we've got to do and what happens, what happens when we don't and how we can get into either being focused on our work tasks or we get into behaving in ways that when we really look into them aren't really in the service of the work that we're tasked to do. They're kind of avoidant, really, but we don't know we're doing it and it's not something we should be blamed about. But we And Beyond talks about being in these basic assumption states. And I think those ideas are really fascinating. So when you're working with a group, to actually sort of look at them and kind of notice them, tune into what they're doing. And I think when, when you feel like, so when you could actually physically, it's almost like a visceral feeling where you put your listening your sensing and you think something's awry here and often that will be that a group is in one of those states and so basic assumption fight flight I think that shows up a lot in groups in organizations where people are always obsessed with talking about what people outside of their group are doing and that's making it really difficult for what they're what they're trying to do or, or just don't want to even think about or don't even want to think about what's going on outside so 
you're sort of like in these in these kind of avoidance states. You're sort of just dependent on somebody else to come up with you. You feel you have no resource. There's nothing that can be done. We're all a bit hopeless. It's all really difficult. We've got too much work to do. What can we do? We can't. And I, that's a kind of basic assumption: dependency, and then pairing where you're either setting up a couple of people in the group or pairing with somebody outside of the group to be kind of almost produce this saviour that will uh, kind of solve all the problems. So I'm, I'm kind of really interested in, in that, in, in thinking about that. And also, I think where that's going on, you'll also, you'll also see in organisations the kind of that thread of sort of social defences against anxiety, because often where that's going on is where people are actually doing quite tough work or up against some things that are really difficult to think about and in and in, in a way that that kind of behavior in groups of people at work is is a sort of gives you a clue about what might be going. it's a kind of enactment really about of what they might be avoiding what you said earlier about working in pairs and the benefits of there being that you know that really nice and of the dance that one of you is able to perhaps pay attention to some of what's not getting said or indeed what's being said and what what might be meant and just that that idea about being curious uh, and noticing gosh this is interesting I wonder what might be going on I think it's I I do think that it's really good to be able to do that and also to allow yourself to sort of notice like when your mind wanders and when you have an image that comes into your mind that's nothing to do with what's consciously being spoken about I just think being able to tuning in but it's quite hard to do in the room and keep an eye on people and run a group you know it's a it's a challenging um, task. I feel like we've spoken about so much and there's so many things I want to touch on I think you briefly spoke about self-enrol um, school as an organisation and also the social defences. A lot of our training in year one with Emma in consultation does touch on being aware of our self in role and I was wondering if you might say a little bit about how those ideas can help when consulting. Okay oh yeah definitely and I, I think um, thinking about self I think I'll start kind of before we get to self in role I think there's something about knowing yourself that's so important about doing this work you know being in touch with kind of what you know what influenced you what led you to be the person that you are now as you begin to do this work and in all of its richness really kind of what groups were you in you know what family groups were you in what school what was your experience growing up all those things you know what about cultural influences who holds the power you know it's all sorts of things that I think really and I often do this exercise with people that's called a kind of role lifeline which is where you get something to draw almost like a snake of, of their kind of role lifeline right from as far back as they want to start it's very much optional you can start as far back as you want thinking about what roles you took up and who, who influenced you to be where the person that you are today so start kind of like that but I also think there's something as well about knowing about ourselves in terms of you know, any difficulties we might have encountered and, you know, being really able to be open to the fact that there may be things we don't see in ourselves that may get in the way of how we take up our roles. So I'm quite keen on people having, who are doing this kind of work, having that opportunity. And I know that a lot of EPs do to, when they are learning, to be in experiential groups. So you can kind of get feedback from your peers about how you are and how you show up and what you might not be seeing for yourself. So I think that kind of knowing about yourself is really important because you then come to the whole thing around self-enrol and again I do use that quite a lot with people when I'm working in coaching 
thinking about kind of, you know, I do that three, a three circle diagram where there's the self, there's the role, and then there's the organization. And look at that kind of, it's like a Venn diagram and look at that bit in where they overlap. Um, because I also find that a lot of people who come with challenging situations at work are often embroiled in tangled um, relationship difficulties. And it's like, it, it all becomes very personal. And there's something about being able to understand that actually you're in a role that is attached to a purpose that an organisation has. And there's something about being able to see that you might be you with all your history, but you're taking up a role and it's got a purpose. And then and then you become what we call there's role relatedness develops between people. If we're able to kind of really think about we're in role and we're actually performing a kind of task that's related to a purpose as opposed to just it being ourselves. It's quite interesting because I think quite a lot of people talk, there's a lot of talk in, in the kind of wider world about um, authenticity and you know, bring your whole self to work and I, which I think is good because I think it's quite important that people don't just have to kind of slot into sort of dominant cultures, which can often be ones that reflect the past and where power are related in the past. But I also think there's something about being able to think, I need to bring my whole self, but appropriate to my role. And I think that's quite a tricky thing to, to navigate. So I do, I do think that's, re- that's, that's really interesting. And then I guess in terms of, you asked me, what else you asked me about organisation in the mind? Yeah. Um, fantastic comment, I think, organisation in the mind. And I suppose the way, the, the way best to talk about the way I work with that is that because of all of what I've just said, because we bring ourselves and everything that's formed us, how we relate to an organisation will be very much shaped by our internal reality. Yeah. And so we will form um, a, a kind of a sense of the organisation that we're in because of our previous experiences, because of who we are. There's a great little diagram of two people talking and one's got a square above their head. I'm sure you're familiar, yeah. one's got a circle. <laughs> and, I, and you see that happening all the time. Um, and one of the things that I've done with um, in my organisation consultancy work is quite often to get people to draw their organisation. I'm a real fan of drawing as a as a way of enabling people who may not be particularly interested in thinking theoretically about the unconscious to a- access other bits of their, their thinking and what might be going on for them and also what might be going on in their system. So ask people to do a drawing of their organisation. And in the old days, when we used to be in rooms together, I would ask people to put the drawings on the floor and then we'd all stand and have a look and reflect, and make some comments on that. You could do it now, but you have to get everyone to kind of pick a photograph and stick it up on Zoom or Teams. It is possible, but I think it's something about being able to see, well, what does that person see um, about this organisation that's different from what I see? And then you can see where the similarities are, where the differences are, where the gaps are, you know, what might be, what might be, um, completely different where the conflicts might be but also it allows everybody else I think to also have an emotional reaction to what they might be looking at as well so it kind of connects to their emotional experience of the organization as well so fascinating I was just thinking about what you were saying initially about knowing yourself and how you're thinking about people who come into training whether that's in health social care the voluntary sector education how many opportunities they realistically are afforded to learn about themselves, to know actually "Mm, my button's been pushed a bit here or that bias or stereotype I've just grown up with as being normal, so-called, and where that might be be from and and how to kind of unpick that a little bit more. 
I guess I was also kind of thinking about how often people come here, Helen, with and and you know, understandably so, or go into teaching, for example, because they the role that they've played for such a long time has been a caregiver. Yeah. And somebody who has a very much an orientation toward the other. And what can be really challenging when you're taking up, say, a consultation role and, and how to kind of navigate, oh, is that about myself and my own kind of those needs being met? Is this the role? Is this the function and task of the job that I have in this context and kind of managing that a little bit, being being really salient? I guess the other thing was just around kind of particularly for when you're learning to, to be a consultant and you're drawing on all your interpersonal skills and you're warm and you're responsive and you want to get along with people, that sometimes the challenge that, that trainees and, and qualified um, psychologists bring back is actually we don't really get along. There isn't that warmth. There isn't that responsiveness. How do I still do my job with a person where those things aren't really available to me? Would any of those things seem similar or or quite different in in some of the work that you've done with other professional groups? I I would say yes, very, very similar. And I, I think because I've had the opportunity to work in lots of different professional settings and with lots of different groups of people, get to a point really in a way where you think, well, actually, most of the problems that come up and most of the challenges are pretty similar. They show up slightly differently because of our particular professional um, worlds that we're in. But the, the challenges people have are quite similar. And I think that there's something around kind of, we're talking, weren't you, Emma, about kind of how, how do you work if people... In a way, it's like when you're when you're experiencing resistance, really, isn't it? From or you're kind of talking about things, and then it's not landing well, and you're being generous and nice, but people are just not interested. Or um, and I, I think for me, the really important thing is about well, it's about those two things. One, it's about being able to kind of have tuned into yourself and sort of know how you were when you arrived and then notice are you feeling different things because you might be picking up I guess we call it psychoanalytically kind of transference from the group but are you picking up feelings that are not being talked about in the room that are I quite often have had experiences where I've sat in a room and thought oh I'm completely useless this group won't engage with me I must be a rubbish consultant I'm normally a friendly person but they're just really hostile and they're really angry (laughs) Um, and it's really challenging and I think it's really difficult and it's and I suppose it's to kind of not underestimate how that actually impacts emotionally but to me what's really important is that you have somewhere to take that and that you're able to keep doing that work on yourself and being curious about yourself so that you can kind of think actually that bit maybe belongs to me and that may be something I need to do a bit of work on in terms of personal development but most of this is what's maybe being communicated to me and I think about it a lot as data like if a group's hostile or resistant it's not about me it's about me in role and in a way they're giving me something that I can work with but I think that's if you were just doing the work you'd been trained and you were just doing the work it would be quite difficult I think it's so important to have a reflective space be that with peers or with with an individual supervisor be able to kind of work that out because some of the powerful stuff that gets projected at us in that consultant role can really get in and really undermine you and really make you feel like you're not doing a very good job and worry about your kind of capacity so I would say supervision and, and the ability to kind of reflect is really important and the other thing just to add I would say that work on self is never done. It's almost like working in this 
sort of work in some ways if we have that reflective supervision it allows you the ability to be a luxury in some ways to be constantly thinking about kind of self and self-development in, um, in a way that perhaps you wouldn't have if you were working in other settings. Yeah I definitely think that's something I really value actually training at the Tavistock that space and personal supervision and last year going through all the work that we did in HIC with Emma I really value that I think that's really helped um, and being able to kind of tease apart that and noticing when you are feeling different in different schools. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a, one of the theoretical kind of founders of this kind of organisation of consultancy, um, Eric Miller. He, he had this, this thing where he says that you're, you know what the issue is within minutes of walking into an organisation. If you're really, he talks about self as instrument yeah. and you, you'll, you'll probably know, you might be, you can't work from there. But when you look back at the end of a piece of work, you can think, oh, that was all there right in those first moments when you when you come into an organisation, because you do start to notice really early, don't you, that a feeling, a kind of a sense, really. We might move on to some of the questions we got from Twitter, if that's all right. Yep. Um, so it's our first few questions ever. Um, and they've asked, when thinking about consulting to schools as a system, who might you see as the consultee? What sort of conditions are required for consultation to be effective so for example like who's best to have in the room and what sort of process you'd follow well that's an interesting question I, I guess it's it, there, it's not going to be a nice answer that's going to say always do it like this um, yeah. because it will be a dependent and obviously for me it's something about um, going to meet whoever it is who's got some authority to bring you in as a consultant so it's like is the work Where's the work authorised? Who's commissioning? Who's commissioning this work and what is its purpose? So it's kind of going in. Who Are you meeting somebody who's got the authority to bring you in? That's one of the things that can sometimes go a bit blurry at the beginning of pieces of consultancy work. So somebody might um, want to bring you in, but they haven't actually got the authority, uh, appropriate authority in the organisation to bring you in. So there's something around that. Is the work properly authorised? And then the other bits of the question would kind of depend on what the work was about. What was the purpose? You know, so some people would talk about maybe some, I don't know, challenges in a in a in a in a team of, of teachers who are kind of struggling around a particular issue. Some people would say work with the teachers, but don't include anybody senior in the room. But depending on what the what the issue was, it might be appropriate to have everybody in together. So I would say there's something very important right at the beginning about really unpicking with whoever commissions you in to do the work what what are they seeking to do I mean they won't necessarily know because as you know things are emergent and things change but there's something about really asking all those questions at the beginning about kind of you know what 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 are we what are we really seeking to think about here and what is the real challenge and taking your time as a consultant as well to think well what would work best what's the best design here for this particular um, piece of work so sometimes um, in pieces of work I've done kind of like some individual conversations with people before we've worked in a group that sets up its own dynamics people tell you things and then say don't say that in the group and then you hold the information so there's a whole thing around kind of how you think about what might work best to get um, uh, to, the, to where the organization wants to go in terms of the challenge that it's bringing you in to think about I guess in a way you said it really is dependent on what primary task is for you in that setting and that yeah. would impact who your consultees are and what the process would be but you really have to like I guess take time to reflect and unpick it and one of the things I think is also quite good to do is always to say we'll do this work for whatever time you're contracted for so you have a clear contract about what you're doing 
we'll do this work for a bit and then we'll review yeah so that you allow yourself the possibility of changing the design if something emerges that you think actually this isn't really working best for this emergent mm-hmm. problem then we can review review together with the people that have commissioned it to think let's shall we do something a bit different for the next bit of the work and you can use what you can even use what's called a um, working note yeah. um, which is quite helpful as well which is a you know, note where you, you'll just do some reflections on what you think's emerging as the issues and talk to the commission, person who's commissioned you about that. You don't have to do that every time, but you can. It's really interesting, I think, for, for students like Zara and for, I mean, you know, qualified practitioners as well, the idea of authorisation. Because oftentimes, and Zara will correct me if it's different in the schools that she's currently working, but oftentimes the educational psychologist's kind of primary point of contact is the special educational needs coordinator. And depending on where they're positioned in the leadership structure within the organisation of the school, they may have lots of delegated authority to act. In other places, it is the head teacher or senior leadership team that are the authorizers of all change. And if you don't have any form of relationship with the head or a member of senior leadership team, I I think that point that you're making about you've got to have some contact with that person if the organisational consultancy is going to have some degree of change. So I was thinking that sometimes where it might come up is that the EP might start an individual piece of work around a child or young person where there is a concern and meet with the the staff most concerned about that young person. And through that process, it might be, well, actually how we're deploying our support services are perhaps not quite the way that they could or should be. And then a kind of a renegotiation, which it's my very long-winded way of asking you a question about contracting. It's so important. And I I, I just think that what you described as those kind of, I know there's probably more than two, but those two sort of structures that you might encounter when you're a student at, um, at EPs, kind of trainee, is, is really similar in lots of organisations. So someone will bring you in, but then when the going gets a bit challenging, they haven't got the authority to make the decisions that need to be made. And that can be really complicated and get really kind of messy. And I mean, things do get a bit messy anyway, but it can get really messy at that stage. So I would I would say that that contracting is so is again so important, and it's a mis- it, to not do it properly is a mistake that sometimes really senior people make as well. To kind of like because you want to do the work, you think it's really important, um, but to do that contracting early on about kind of what you are going to offer, what they're wanting, what are our expectations, how are we going to actually do that work together to get something written down. Almost it doesn't have to be a formal contract in the sense of a legal document but something that you can go back to and say this is what we agreed that we would do and it's also then you can actually go back and say right we're doing a review now should we alter some of this and I think that contracting process both the conversations and the writing down of it forms part of what then will be containment for the work that um, you're going to do and where you don't have it in place um, appropriately is where things can get uncontained and then things can go wrong. And I think the pressures within the system, you know, and there's such worries around kind of maybe, again, individual pupils or, or, or people attending a community setting or groups of people that the kind of pressure to go quick and just jump over the, the contracting phase is, yeah, you know, that's fine. Let's move into the real work. And actually, maybe sometimes the contracting to figure out what the problem is could actually sometimes take up far more time and in and of itself aid change because you're helping the, the organisation clarify, are these symptoms of something? 
you know, and what might be underlying or underpinning that and through those contracting conversations, perhaps unpicking or exploring that a little bit more? I agree. And, I, you know, it's, it's like we call it contracting, but it's almost like it's the first bit of consultancy in an organisation doing mm. contract. I think you're often spending quite a bit of time at that stage. And I think there's also often what you'll see, because it is everything so fast-paced and because there's lots of anxieties um, often around a child or um that there'll be a desire to get something done really, really quickly. And, you know, we know that when we do that, that's where things get missed. And so that contracting, um, it's like an intervention into the organisation to get people to just begin to slow down a bit and have a bit of space to think. You know, because, you know, you asked me earlier on about, kind of, you know, do you see things differently in different settings? And I would say that kind of rush to action is something you see in every setting, everywhere private sector, public sector, voluntary sector, rather than slowing down and thinking, well, what, what, you know, because it's difficult sometimes and it's probably quite um, emotionally difficult to slow down and really think about what we're doing sometimes. So, Which leads yeah. to my next question, which was around kind of, you've mentioned social defences against anxiety previously um, and what can happen in organisations where they're doing, you know, things that can give rise to lots and lots of feelings and particularly distressing feelings. And I guess we've always been drawn to the kind of original work from Elliot Jacks or Isabel Menzies' life about kind of, I mean, particularly thinking about nurses and what anxiety within a whole organisation can do to the task and kind of, you know, in almost divorcing the kind of relational emotional component from a very procedural, ritualised, you know, I'll wash all the patients, I'll feed all the, you know, and, and breaking the task down to such a level that the relationship itself almost got broken. I guess we're just wondering about, for from your perspective, in terms of a school as an organisation or a local authority as an organisation, are there any kind of social defences that you might have noticed in your own practice as an organisational consultant that kind of helped you make sense of or understand that maybe there's anxiety going on within the whole system rather than maybe within a, within an individual? Well, I think I could speak to that. You know, most recently I've been doing a lot of work in local authorities and working in children's services and social workers. And you can really notice that in the sense of the kind of emphasis on dashboards, case numbers, counting, counting numbers, performance, all of those kinds of things that sort of uh, supervisors doing supervision, looking at their screen typing, not even looking at the social worker that they're talking to when they're trying to um, reflect about a particularly challenging um, case that somebody may have. But they're doing that because they're being driven to do it because the system higher up is requiring lots of data. So it's something about data and kind of data driven, always trying to be ready for the next um, inspection. So, you know, are all are all those um, sort of data? It's, it's, it's a lot about paperwork, really. And, um, and I'm not saying that that isn't important. But the back, there's something about balance, isn't there? And, but, I, and I, but I also think that you see people retreat into doing a lot of work in that area of their job when thinking about the challenges are really difficult. And that gives you a bit of a clue of like, actually, it feels safer to be in front of an Excel spreadsheet than it does to sit in here and really think about what's going on with this child um, and their family. So it's, it's kind of little clues like that, really. And I, 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 do think, I do think in education, you know, that you are, there are, you know, obviously all schools are different, but there are 
you know, all the processes, procedures, rules, if they're tipping too far into sort of that being everything that people think about, and we don't really think about who's on the receiving end of those and what we're actually there to do, what the task is there to do. And it goes back to all that thinking about um, with Beyond as well, and Beyond's theories about what might be going on in groups. And I think what's really interesting is that where you have organisations that have made a conscious decision to work relationally, they can find a way to do that and still meet the requirements of the um, providing the data so and that gives you a real clue that actually it's a social defense rather than because it's about excessive inhabiting of that territory as opposed to doing what you need to do because you do need to, i'm not I, I wouldn't say you don't need to do that you do you do need to have those um, it's those the extreme nature uh, and yeah. the kind of not being able to hold both together yeah. sounds like that's the thing that maybe might give you just that again curiosity about ooh, what might be going on yeah. I don't know, Zara, if you had you know, been in schools more recently, but would, you know, some of what Helen's describing about kind of, you know, kind of use of data, worries around inspection and preoccupation about what will happen. I mean, I don't know if that would sound familiar to any of the, the context you or colleagues have been in. Yeah, I mean, I definitely feel like you can see there's obviously, again, like there's different schools which will focus on different things and there's some schools which will heavily focus on the data. And also, I think you know you have the whole thing, don't you, about kind of what gets put onto schools by the rest of society, you know, and it's you know failing schools and good schools, you know. There's all of that that I think the, the context that um, people are working in, and I and I think there's something very particular in schools around fear of failure and fear, you know, fear of, of not getting it right, not passing your exams, you know, that kind of, that kind of feeling really that I think it comes out in school in schools more perhaps than in other settings. That kind of brings us to thinking a bit about boundaries, um, how boundaries can be a container for the work we do. And we thought a little bit about time boundaries, territory, task boundaries, um, and how they can help contain some of the anxieties that arise in our work by providing that structure and stability. Could you say a little bit more about containment um, in this context and how you think it'd be relevant? Yeah, I mean, I, that goes back to the kind of um, the bit about that I really love about Elliot Jack's work around um, having, having a kind of what's called a requisite organisation. Do you have is that, do, do, are the structures there to contain the emotional work that we have to do? And I think you've talked about time, task, and territory, and those are really important. I think when you're doing um, consultancy work, people get to know that if they train at the Tavistock about time, that you know people come into their lectures on time and they end on the time boundary and there's no blurring well maybe we do that blur it a little bit more than we used to but <laughs> there's something about learning that and then being allowed to blur it that I think is really important and I think there's something about modeling something to people that you consult to that makes enables people to feel a bit safer I think they know that you're reliable you'll be there on time you'll have this period of time to think together and to do the work together and then you'll stop so they're not going to be thinking well am I going to be in this forever or you know it helps people feel a bit safer I think in terms of doing the work I think being again really really clear about what we're here to do um, and reviewing if we need to change it and having a sort of consistent place I mean at the moment we're always we're all in this what one of my colleagues called flatland which I think was really (laughs) nice way of describing being constantly in the virtual world there is something about kind of 
it being familiar. So there's like familiarity that also provides that kind of um, containing structure. And it, in, a, in a way, it goes back to some of the therapeutic kind of beginnings of this sort of work, which was thinking very much around a therapy session and that kind of um, need for consistent place and time. And I think it's, it's really, really important. And I think what, what's really important when you're a beginning is to really, really stick to it. And I think when, you, when you're kind of more confident, you can make decisions in the moment if you think you can, you want to blur it but I, I I'm usually quite a kind of stickler for sticking to the time boundary particularly because I do think it, it models something and it models something about respect for each other as well so there's something relational about it it's like I'm going to be here at this time you're going to be here at this time we've kind of made this contract to do this work together at this time and we're going to respect each other that we've done that so there's something about looking after each other which is relational as well in, in thinking about boundaries yeah yeah um, yeah thing I wanted to just also ask you about was about territory and as an external consultant going into organizations because I think going into schools space is at an absolute premium you know sometimes people come here saying oh I thought you know the drama club was meeting in here and just that that kind of issue as an organizational consultant going in from the external in about you know the why it's important it's not just being precious about well I want to have a space to do the work in but it actually serves a, a sort of a purpose about the consultation. I think that's that's right. And it, is, it sort of links to what I was just saying about kind of feeling safe, being able to kind of know that in that space, we'll be able to really focus on what it is that we're being tasked to do in this consultation. We're not going to be interrupted. I think, I think there's something about when you go in, about being able to really articulate that to People, so you don't just come across as somebody who's a bit sort of, of a prima donna or something and just <laughs> wants a nice room to work in. But actually, it's it's related to your ability to work well and get and really get on with the work. There are, you know, I think there's something around as well. If that's a challenge, that will give you some really good clues about what might be going on in that particular setting as well. Because you know that that if they can't find a space, it's like how do how do any conversations happen? Um, that needs to be in a confidential space or um, who is valued and what's valued in this setting. Um, so, I, so I always think it's great to get it and it's important to try, but if you don't, to be curious about what's actually going on in the first place, rather than you can get mobilised to get a bit cross or something and kind of say, I need a space, but it's more sort of like, I wonder what this is telling me about this system and how then can I approach it differently so that we can actually get to where we need to be, which is to have that, have that space that we can do the work in. Such a, such an important point about it's it's yeah again data isn't it how does this help me make sense of what might be going on here just kind of picking up again I suppose about how boundary then links into to role and organization and kind of you know Vega Roberts work in the is it in the unconscious at work about you know however challenging it might be to find one's role in a system when the boundary keeps changing and shifting it gets you know even more complicated about trying to work out your role and she was talking about you know increasingly less stable systems things being much more in flux than perhaps they were when some of the original thinking around this way of working was emerging and she talks about you know Task and identity and that point about you know who is the us and who is the them yeah. is really kind of relevant to to some of the work that we would do all the different subsystems that there might be within a school or a local authority and do those align or is there a bit of competition between them um, and also you know you've mentioned about authority and, and authorizing change and was wondering we were wondering if you might say something about 
Yeah. How do you find your role as a consultant when the boundary keeps feeling like it's shifting and, and changing? It's interesting because I think there's something as well about the context in which we work now that are a lot more networked than kind of in the way that they than they used to be. There's a lot more kind of cross-boundary work. But there's something about finding a role, there's something about finding the boundary as well. So I think there's something about thinking about, you know, where does this start and where does this end? Where does this system that I'm in begin and where does it end? What what's the, you know, what defines it's what's the definition of this particular um, system that I'm in and kind of asking questions I think a lot because I think what might happen are you talking about a situation where someone will go in and they'll be asked to do a piece of work with this particular about this particular thing and then it will change into something else is that what you're talking about yeah I think there's that and I think there's also when you're an educational psychologist working for the local authority you have a responsibility and, and task for the local authority yeah. And then when you go into the school and the, that kind of subsystems change slightly. And yep. yeah, so a, a bit of both, actually. Yeah. And I, I guess there's also there's something isn't there about kind of in this moment, what is my what role am I in? That's the thing that's really important. And lots of us have kind of multiple roles and multiple systems that we work in in different ways. So, for example, at the top of Portman, I work as a, a, a manager of a portfolio of postgraduate trainings. I also work as a teacher on our masters and our doctoral programs and so I'm in two I'm in different roles when I'm in those systems or I've got multiple roles when I'm in those systems and so I'm having to think in this moment which role am I in and then how am I how am I showing up and how am I operating even though I've got the knowledge of the other bit of the system yeah um, I mean it's really just making me think about head teachers actually you know and that issue around leadership and how the head teacher has so many different roles depending on the context that they're in and what is my task in this particular you know safeguarding finance performance yeah. you know, so many different things and how we expect head teachers to hold all of those systems and subsystems in their minds and also to be clear actually I'm responding in this way to that question from that staff member with this framework yeah. and I could be asked something in 10 minutes and I'm coming at it from and having that space um, as a leader within a complex system like a school for the for some form of consultation to help make sense of the role and, and what might be going on. I think that's really, really important. I think, you know, one of the things you asked me about was about um, book chapters or things that mm. might be helpful. And there's, there's one that I think is really great, which is by Simon Tucker, which is about head, the experience of head teachers. Mm. Um, and social defences but I, I think that thing about kind of holding multiple roles but also multiple approaches so one of one of the things the, the the pieces of work that I draw on quite often as well is Simon Weston's work on kind of discourses of leadership where he talks about kind of the development of leadership in the, in through the 20th and into the 21st century and four discourses of leadership but in a way they they sort of describe how different theories of leadership emerge but they also sh- describe different ways leaders need to be so you know you need to be a controller leader so you've got a grip on the resources that you're that you're both financial and people that you're able to deploy you need to be a a kind of therapeutic leader so that you're mindful about teams and being relational and and you need to be what he describes I'm not sure I like the word but he calls it a a messiah leadership but it's um it's a sort of setting the vision follow me I'm the I, I I'm leading this school in this way and we're you know you're 
you're you're it's good to be one of my followers that kind of inspirational part of being a leader setting the vision and then he talked about kind of eco leadership which is being much more thinking about systems and that we're in a school that's in a community that's in a place and we're all connected and you know we're connected to the families and the children that kind of come into the school and and we need to be thinking as a leader about all those systems as well that surround us and being place-based as well as institution-based and that kind of thing and I, I think that's really nice way of looking at a sort of lots of different ways that you can take up leadership and take up roles according to the task and so to go right back to what you asked me which is about boundaries I think there's something about tasks that's really it's just being clear about the task and then it, it's like if you feel the boundaries are being is that related to the task or is that if you're being pulled over a boundary go back to what's the task and is that really a good place to be being pulled to I think that's really helpful to think about it in that way, actually, just to always go go back to what the initial task was, what you've contracted to do. Yeah, because you can get so kind of interested and immersed in things and distracted and mm. kind of but going back to the original contract. And that's why having those review points, I think, in work is quite so important as well. So. Yeah. Yeah. Going back to what is my task and what is my role and being able to make sense of what might be going on in the context of those things. I think some of the difficulties that systems can find themselves in is because the task boundary has become incredibly blurred or what we say the task is, is not actually what we're what we're doing. Yeah. We've lost sight of the fact that, that, that there's a massive discrepancy between those things and, and just such a yeah such a helpful thing to kind of keep reorientating back definitely definitely and I think that there's kind of that whole thing isn't there around the primary task and there's a lot of discussion now about the primary purpose as well mm-hmm. but there's kind of Gordon Lawrence's work about and he looked at all the, the different kinds of tasks that we're in I think that's quite helpful to kind of remember you know what what we think what we say we're doing what we think we're doing and what we're actually doing and just kind of mm-hmm. to keep reviewing and it's a good tool to use in supervision actually if you've come back from a consultation and you're having some you know peer supervision or consultancy of your own or, or you're working with your supervisor is to do that kind of analysis at that three those three different levels definitely the space to have a mind to think with definitely. Um, yeah about what might be going on there Helen I just wanted to say thank you so much I yeah it was a very wide ranging and you've covered a huge amount in that in that conversation and lots of really really helpful things that I'm sure I know Zara and I hopefully people listening will be able to take something away from what you've shared so thank you hugely delighted delighted and the book I'd recommend that you mentioned Emma The Unconscious at Work okay can't beat it it's a new there's a new edition out so it's been updated but i just think if it's a really accessible way to start thinking about some of these ideas 